From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, in for Terry Gross. Today, we'll remember author Hilary Mantel, who died last month. Mantel was best known for her trilogy of novels about Thomas Cromwell, the political fixer for Henry VIII. Mantel was the first woman to win Britain's top literary award, the Booker Prize, twice for the first two books in the trilogy, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies. She'll talk about her long struggle with endometriosis. Also, we'll talk with Edward Enenful, editor-in-chief of British Vogue, about bringing diversity into the fashion industry. He'd been told black women don't sell magazines. He proved that false. And Maureen Corrigan reviews Less is Lost, the follow-up to Andrew Sean Greer's Pulitzer Prize-winning satirical novel, Less. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, sitting in for Terry Gross. Today, we remember author Hilary Mantel, who died last month at the age of 70. Mantel was best known for her trilogy of novels about Thomas Cromwell, the political fixer for Henry VIII. She was the first woman to win the Booker Prize twice for the first two of her Cromwell books, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies. The third novel, The Mirror and the Light, was published in 2020 and was longlisted for the same prize. Mantell wrote 14 other books, including the memoir Giving Up the Ghost, in which she describes her long struggle with a debilitating form of endometriosis. Mantell's trilogy chronicles Thomas Cromwell's improbable rise as the son of a blacksmith to become one of the most powerful men of his time in 16th century England. But Cromwell, like many others around Henry VIII, fell into disfavor with the king and was beheaded. Cromwell helped bring about the English Reformation. That's when the Church of England broke away from the Catholic Church, allowing Henry VIII to annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon and Mary Anne Boleyn. But if you remember your history, you'll recall that things didn't go so well for Anne Boleyn. In fact, her beheading ends Mantell's novel, Bring Up the Bodies. Terry spoke with Hilary Mantell in 2012, after Bring Up the Bodies had won the Booker Prize. Hilary Mantell, welcome to Fresh Air, and congratulations on your second Man Booker Prize. It's uh, quite an accomplishment. So I'd love to start from a reading with a reading from the new book, Bring Up the Bodies. And um, this is toward the very end of the book, when Anne Boleyn is getting executed. And there are many executions in your books. (laughs) The first book ends with an execution, and so does the second. Um, So before you read this passage, I'd like you to just explain what's happening and who is speaking in this passage that you're going to read. Well, we first of all have Thomas Cromwell, who's Henry's chief minister and the organizer of the plot to bring down Anne Boleyn. We are almost at the last moment now. Henry has sent for the executioner from Calais to behead his wife with the sword rather than the customary axe in the hope it will give her a quicker death. So... We have Cromwell, we have the French executioner, and we have Christophe, a young ruffian who is a servant to Cromwell. The weapon is heavy, needing a two-handed grip. It's almost four foot in length, two inches broad, round at the tip, a double edge. One practices like this, the executioner says. 
He whirls like a dancer on the spot, his arms held high, his fists together as if he were gripping the sword. Every day one must handle the weapon, if only to go through the motions, one may be called at any time. We do not kill so many in Calais, but one goes to other towns. It is a good trade, Christophe says. He wants to handle the sword, but he, Cromwell, does not want to let go of it yet. The man says, They tell me I may speak French to her, and she will understand me. Yes, do so, Cromwell says. But she will kneel, she must be informed of this. There is no block, as you see. She must kneel upright and not move. If she is steady, it will be done in a moment. If not, she will be cut to pieces. He hands back the weapon. I can answer for her. The executioner says, between one beat of the heart and the next, it is done. She knows nothing. She is in eternity. They walk away. Christophe says, Master, that man has said to me, tell the women that she should wrap her skirts about her feet when she kneels, in case she falls bad and shows off to the world what so many fine gentlemen have already seen. He does not reprove the boy for his coarseness. He is crude, but correct. When the moment comes, it will prove. The women do it anyway. They must have discussed it among themselves. Thank you for reading that. And that's Hilary Mantel reading from the end, not the very end, but near the end of her latest novel, Bring Up the Bodies, which won the Man Booker Award, Britain's highest literary prize. You know, it's such a, uh, you just kind of shiver uh, hearing that passage. And it just made me think, you know, about about executions like the. It makes the guillotine seem very humane by comparison. Um, you know, where you're describing that if she moves, uh, if Anne Boleyn moves while the sword's coming down, that, you know, she'll be cut to pieces. as It won't be a swift death. Yes, they were asking her to do something very difficult, which was to remain absolutely still in the knowledge of what was coming. But the executioner was a man who obviously knew his trade and... What he did was to approach Anne from an angle that she wasn't expecting. She was blindfolded and she couldn't hear him because he was wearing soft slippers. And it happened before she knew. And she did remain kneeling upright. Usually executions were with the axe and the sufferer put their head on a block. But Henry thought that this was a a more skillful, humane way of doing it. It's strange that he should have such a scruple at the last moment. This is very thoughtful if you're executing your wife to do it so humanely. Uh, yes, it seems strange to us, doesn't it? But for a while, they, the people at the Tower of London didn't know whether Anne was to be beheaded or burned. And 
you know, typical bureaucrats, they're sending frantic notes saying, what kind of scaffold have we to build? When you look at it through the bureaucratic language, it all becomes even more chilling because to them, it's just an administrative problem. They just want to get things done efficiently. After all, it's not every day that one executes a Queen of England. So uh, I'm not sure if this is something you've thought about before or not, but I know that you wrote, I think it was your very first book, uh, about the French Revolution. Sure. And now you've written about Henry VIII, and Mm. there are several beheadings in in these books. Um, So excuse me for asking this, but if you had to be beheaded (laughs) centuries ago, would you have preferred the guillotine or the axe or sword customarily used in England? Well, it's a strange question. I thought um, so. <laughs> but I, no, I, I'm quite prepared to answer that. I think um, uh, the guillotine never failed, you know, whereas uh, the headsman occasionally, as in fact in the case of the execution of Thomas Cromwell himself, Uh, was either not expert enough or maybe having a bad day, and the whole thing could take a long time. At least the guillotine was over in seconds. However, you know, I am hoping this fate will not befall me. (laughs) No, I I suspect it won't. (laughs) And and Cromwell will be executed in in the final book in your trilogy, which you're you're writing now. Yes, um, 1540. The, the final book covers his rise and rise. He's a long way to go yet. And then his sudden fall and execution in the summer of 1540. One of the things I find so interesting about, you know, you know reading uh, historical fiction in a period of beheadings in England is that we're now in a period where Islamist extremists are beheading people. And it is so shocking that now people would be beheaded. But when you think of the part it played in Western history, that's shocking too. Yes, and um, I have lived in Saudi Arabia and indeed written a book about Saudi Arabia. So whilst I am happy to say that I never witnessed anything of that kind, you knew that it went on, that, that beheading and public beheading was the normal form of execution. I'm sorry for dwelling so much on executions, but historically, it's so interesting in your book. I mean, there were other forms of execution. What were some of those forms and which was considered the worst, the most horrible of all deaths? Well, beheading, believe it or not, was a privilege reserved usually for the aristocracy, for gentlemen and gentlewomen, Now, I don't want you to get the idea that these were a weekly event in Henry's England. It's because beheadings were rare that they made such a a terrible impact on the imagination of the close circle around Henry, his ministers, the aristocracy. Ordinary people who might be convicted of theft or a crime of violence were hanged. I think there were two deaths that were more feared. One was to be hanged, drawn and quartered, which was the penalty 
for high treason. And the people in the book, um, when they were given a sentence of beheading, the men who were convicted with Anne Boleyn would have regarded that as a mercy rather than the terribly painful and long-drawn-out death of being hanged, drawn and quartered. The other thing, um, if a woman was uh, convicted of treason, if she could be burned. We're listening back to Terry's 2012 interview with author Hilary Mantel. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. And Maureen Corrigan will review Less is Lost, the follow-up to Andrew Sean Greer's Pulitzer Prize-winning satirical novel, Less. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Hilary Mantel, the author best known for her three historical novels about Thomas Cromwell. She also wrote a memoir called Giving Up the Ghost that describes her long struggle with endometriosis. Mantel died last month at the age of 70. You know, I was thinking if anyone ever needs an antidote to princess fantasies, they might want to read your books. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Women who were chosen as queen, that sounds really great, right? But if they don't give birth to a male heir for Henry VIII, bam, they're executed. Um, Well, no, I don't think it's as simple as that, in all fairness. He didn't (laughs) execute his first wife for failing to give birth to a male heir. He divorced her. Uh, He didn't execute Anne for that reason. But Anne had become a political liability, a diplomatic liability. And Henry did believe, rightly or wrongly, that there was a plot against him, a plot to kill him, and that Anne was implicated. It sounds unlikely, it sounds far-fetched, but the court was, I won't say happy, but they were able to go along with it. Uh, It wouldn't be, let's be fair even to Henry, um, there was no crime of failing to bear the king a son. There was a crime of treason. Anne was convicted of treason. Um, What, in doing so much research for your books about Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII, what are some of the things you learned about what it meant to be a woman then, even a woman who becomes queen? I think it's a great mistake to regard these women as victims. Certainly Catherine of Aragon, Henry's first wife, and Anne Boleyn, they were superbly educated women. They were strong-minded, strong characters, strong wills, and they were clever. And they were political players. Uh, The title of Queen of England could bring a lot of unofficial power with it. So I just want to ask you a little bit about your health. I I know you've had a debilitating condition for a few decades now, uh, endometriosis, um, which which has been a a pretty systemic problem uh, for you. Would you just explain a little bit what the condition is? Yes, endometriosis is a condition in which the special cells that line the womb, they are the endometrium. They should be in your womb. But in endometriosis, these special cells 
are found in other parts of the body, typically through the pelvis, but they can be anywhere in the body. And the problem there is um, they bleed each month, just as the, the lining of the womb does. Then they scar over, and depending how much space there is uh, around the scar tissue, you can have terrific pain, disability. It's an unrecognised problem among teenage girls, and it's something that every young woman who has has painful menstruation should be aware of you've got to ask yourself you know could this be endometriosis because it's a condition that is curable if it's caught early if not if it's allowed to run on it can cause infertility and it can really really mess up your life I suffered from it I think since I was 11 years old it wasn't diagnosed I kept getting sent away and told that it was all in my mind. When I was 27, the whole thing came to a crisis, uh, and I had surgery, big surgery. I lost my fertility. I didn't have any children. I don't know whether I would have been able to have children. Unfortunately, um, that surgery didn't cure the condition. It came back, and... I live with it for the next 20 years. It's now died back, it's quiescent, but it's done a lot of damage to my body in the meanwhile. So, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but because of the steroids that you were on to help yeah. with your condition, and I think because of a thyroid condition as well, your weight just about doubled, and you yeah. ended up with a completely different body. That's right. Than the one yes. that you used to have. How did that change the sense of who you are? Well, I live my life as a skinny little thing. <laughs> uh, and that's the body type in my family. And, you know, I thought I'd get old, but I never thought I'd get fat. And I was given a particular drug, um, and I'm going back 20 years now, where my weight just went crazy and I had to, um, my size changed every week and I ended up, as you say, doubling my body weight. And a lot of that gain took place over a very short period of about nine months. So I didn't recognise myself and I still have trouble. When I see myself in dreams... Now I'm a fat woman, but for the first 20 years, I should say, I saw myself as I used to be, and then I'd wake up and I'd think, who is this? What is all this flesh? Well, it must have created a strange relationship to your body because your body was already um, in pain from the endometriosis, but then it was like physically transformed. You didn't even recognize it. And to have a body, to be in a body, however you want to see your body, and not feel like it's really yours must be a very, you know, estranging position to be in. You want to feel united with your body, not like it's this alien thing that you ended up in. Yes, that's right. And the, the pity of it was that the drug in question 
didn't do anything for me at all. It didn't do anything to help the pain or cure the endometriosis. It was a complete misfire, medically speaking. But, you know, I well remember going to see the doctor who prescribed the drug for me when I'd put on the first couple of stone and telling her what was happening. And she said, oh, well, now you know what it's like for the rest of us. And Well, that's helpful. Uh, yeah, um, unhelpful, eh? And, uh, yeah, it was a strange process. It's very difficult for me not to regard my body as my enemy, but it's the only one I've got. So I'm thinking there was a period of a few years when you lived in Saudi Arabia. Your, yes. Your husband is a geologist, and he was working there. And, of, co- of course, there were so many restrictions on your life. You couldn't drive. You could barely leave your house unless you were escorted by your husband or another man. Um, and I'm thinking you probably already had gained the weight, so you were in a new body in a country that basically granted you no rights that must have been such a a really strange and um, alienating period for you. Yes, it was. Um, I went out to Saudi Arabia when I was still taking this drug and um, partway through this strange weight gain. And uh, out there, you dress in drapery rather than clothes. (laughs) So... Perhaps if it was going to happen, that was the best time for it to happen. But I take your point. It is very strange. I lived in a block of four flats. My neighbours were, they were not all Saudis, but they were Muslims. Upstairs from me was a young Saudi couple The wife was about 19. She had a baby. We saw each other most days. We'd have coffee and a chat. And she was a student at the Women's University and I'd help her with her work. But, of course, I was never introduced to her husband. And if we happened to pass in the common hallway, then his reaction was to look straight through me and at the wall as if I was invisible for all my newly gained flesh. And by doing this, he was showing his respect for me. Now, you have to work hard to get your head around that, that making someone invisible is a form of respect. I wasn't wearing a black veil, but he was dropping one over me. Then you go to the shops, eh, you go, let's say, into the drugstore, you'd, you'd ask for a packet of aspirin, and the man wouldn't talk to you, and he'd look over your shoulder, and your husband would say, can she have a packet of aspirin, please? And he'd say, yes, sir. <laughs> was, was it hard after getting back to England f- from your years in Saudi Arabia to be an empowered person again? Well, you know, I used to come back every summer. So my life fell into two parts. A woman who ran her own life in Britain and a woman who in Saudi Arabia simply didn't have a life to run. And sometimes 
when I was in Saudi Arabia, I used to take out the evidence of my other life. I used to read the stubs on my checkbook, thinking, yes, there was a time when I could pay for my own aspirin <laughs> or whatever. Well, Hilary Mantel, congratulations on your books and the Man Booker uh, Prizes, and thank you so very much for talking with us. Thank you very much. Hilary Mantel, speaking with Terry Gross in 2012. She died last month at the age of 70. For anyone craving wit and keen-eyed social observation, our book critic Maureen Corrigan has a novel to recommend. Two, in fact, since the novel she's just read, called Less is Lost by Andrew Sean Greer, is a sequel to his Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Less. Here's her review. Why do we underrate comedy when we need it so badly? When Andrew Sean Greer's novel, Less, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2018, there was a dismissive shrug on the part of some critics. After all, the Pulitzer is usually awarded to a novel that's not as much fun to read as Less was. A satire of the pretensions of the literary world, Less chronicled the efforts of its hero, the white, gay, American minor writer, Arthur Less, to outrun his impending 50th birthday and the wedding of his former partner by accepting every invitation to every literary conference, junket, writer's retreat, and festival that came his way. Naturally, when the news of a sequel to Less was announced, more dismissive shrugging ensued, as though no one remembered acclaimed sequels written by the likes of John Updike, Philip Roth, and Hilary Mantel. Less is Lost picks up with Arthur Less, now living with that aforementioned partner, Freddie Pellew, who left his new husband to return to Less. You'd think that demonstration of love would be enough— but Les is a chronically uncertain person, prone to what Freddie, who acts as our occasional narrator, calls a clumsiness of the heart. The death year of Les's first love, the famous poet Robert Brownburn, only deepens Les's uncertainty, since it turns out that Les owes a decade of back rent on the San Francisco bungalow he's been living in that was owned by Brownburn. Fortunately, for a writer so minor, he's often confused with another minor writer of the same name, even though the other guy is African-American. Les has lately been receiving a strangely high number of invitations for lucrative literary gigs, public lectures, glossy writing assignments, and the like. So Les hits the road again, this time in the U.S., both he and Freddie assume that a separation may clarify their relationship. Les's first assignment is in Palm Springs, where he'll write a profile of the science fiction writer H. 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 Mandern, who appeared in the first novel. Here's Greer's skewering description of Mandern. A best-selling author since his first book, Incubus, came out in 1978, H.H.H. H. H. Mandern instantly became a towering figure in the world of books with his striped Vincent Price beard and rock star behavior such as setting money on fire. 
But nothing stopped his output. A novel, sometimes two a year, and not just any novels, but 600-page portraits of interstellar war and alien empire building that would take a normal human being a year just to type. Mandern, always cranky, uses the profile as a bargaining chip to make Les drive him and his pug dog in a decrepit camper van through the Mojave Desert for a reunion with his estranged daughter. Thus begins a travelogue through the West and South, where, among other misadventures, Les is repeatedly greeted by the proprietors of RV parks with variations on this question, here asked by a lady in Louisiana. Now, you're not from around here, are you, honey? No, answers Les. See, I thought from how you sounded, you was from the Netherlands. Les, we're told, knows what this means, and he has never known what to say, because of the question this woman is really asking, without at all knowing she is asking it, without meaning anything in the world except that she detects a linguistic flourish, is, are you a homosexual? The question you may well be asking at this point is, is less is lost, as good, as funny, as poignant as its predecessor? To which I would happily answer, yes, at least. There are extended comic passages here about Les's Walloon ancestry and a mediocre gay men's chorus singing Leonard Cohen songs that I read aloud laughing to anyone I could waylay. But comedy also arises out of pain, and Greer smoothly transitions into the profound, such as in this rumination by Les about the empty encounter he has on the trip with his long-lost father. The moment holds neither disappointment nor delight. Realizing we are no longer in love is not the heartbreaking sensation we imagine when we are in love— because it is no sensation at all. It is a realization made by a bystander. Greer has said in interviews that this sequel is the end of less. That would be a shame. Greer should add even more to Les's saga and take him as far as he can go. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of English at Georgetown University. She reviewed Less is Lost by Andrew Sean Greer. Coming up, we hear from Edward Enenville, editor-in-chief of British Vogue. He's been called the most powerful black man in fashion and was a key player in diversifying the industry. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Our guest, Edward Enenville, is editor-in-chief of British Vogue and European editorial director for Condé Nast. In 2020, Time magazine called him the most powerful black man in fashion. One of his missions has been making the fashion industry more inclusive. He's the author of a new memoir called A Visible Man. Enenful spoke with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, host of the podcast Truth Be Told. Here's Tanya. Black women don't sell magazines. That's what Edward Enenful heard from the very beginning of his career in the fashion industry. And for him, that just sounded absurd. Growing up in Ghana and the UK, Enenfil watched his mother, a dressmaker, transform women's lives. And he saw how women of color not only influenced street and high fashion, 
but served as tastemakers, influencing the very pages of the magazines they were shunned from. This insight is one of the driving forces behind Inful's three decades-long career as a stylist, art director, and editor for some of the most popular fashion magazines and brands in the world. For the last five years, Inful has served as editor-in-chief of British Vogue, holding the distinction as the first male, black, and gay editor in the magazine's 106-year history. He's written about his life and career in a new memoir titled A Visible Man. Edward Innenfull, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. So you first got into the fashion industry as a model, 16 years old, discovered on a train. And from the very start, you felt othered. You could see clearly as you write in this book that you were entering what you called a racist, classist industry. How did that show up for you in those beginning days as a model? I mean, you know, I remember we moved over from Ghana to to London. And in Ghana, you know, everybody was black. It was a black country. And I came to England and realized that I was a minority, which in itself was quite strange. So anyway, one day I'm on the train and I was 16 years old and there was a a gentleman staring at me on the train and, you know, I was quite sheltered, you know, my family kind of, you know, religious and I wasn't very worldly and this man was staring at me. And after a few stops, he got up and gave me his card and his name was Simon Foxton and he was one of sort of the premier fashion stylists in England at the time. And he worked for ID magazine and another magazine called Arena so I remember going home to my mom, you know, my Ghanaian mom, and I said, you know, mom, I, I was stopped on the train to be a model. I mean, I didn't think I could be. I was so lanky and tall and with very dark skin. And for me, models never looked like that. So anyway, my, I wore my mother down after two weeks. And, um, and then I really started realizing what the industry was really like. Because I'll go to castings and I'll be told, you know, I was too dark or that my lips were too big or my nose was too wide. You know, I really saw firsthand that being dark-skinned or being black wasn't so desirable back then. And as a young kid, that's a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, that's quite a hard thing to take on because, you know, I believe people can say what they want about your work, but when they sort of criticise your being and how you look, it goes deeper. So I remember modeling when I was and I'm thinking, this is not going to be what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. You knew. I'm going yeah. to go behind the cameras. So I started learning. You took on a pretty big role at a very young age. At 18, you became what was the youngest art director at the time for ID Magazine. And it was there that you asserted this power that you had to do things like hire black models. What was it like to be 18 among established stylists and fashion magazine veterans pushing something that they had never considered or was pushing against, which you had seen firsthand as a model? I mean, I remember I knew my modeling days were over when I was out to pay attention to photography and to the lighting and and the clothes and so from modeling, you know, I started assisting a bit while going to, you know, 
I'll be going to college. And then eventually I got given the role of fashion director at ID when I was 18. And there I was, an 18-year-old in charge of, you know, this important magazine. So what did I do? I just threw myself into it. I learned everything I could about magazines. I tell you, I, I, I didn't sleep. I would literally style the covers. I'd work on cover lines. I'd work on features inside the magazines. I'd work on the shopping pages. I mean, it was like a one-man army. And then on top of that, I'd be in the advertising department, learning how to sell the magazine. And we had these club nights. So I, I, I went to those club nights as well so we could, you know, show the world what we were doing at the magazine and get them to invest. I was in the art department. And when you're 18 and you feel like an imposter, you just learn everything you can learn. So I, I didn't sleep. All I did was work and learn my craft. So I'm really, you know, even though it was quite difficult sort of the next however many years, at that moment in time, I knew I couldn't, I couldn't fail. There was also quite a bit of code switching. You write about this in the book. What did code switching look like for you back then? And how was that in contrast with the real you? I mean, code switching, I mean, us, you know, immigrants are very good at code switching. And so are, are, are gay people, um, black people. I mean, you know, whatever you want to name it, anybody who's been othered. So for me, you know, even as far back as when we first moved to England, I always say when I was at home, I was in sort of Ghana, Africa, with the food, the clothes, the smell, the languages. Then when I left home and went to school, I was in England. The school uniform, speak, you know, with my friends, always, you know, eating fish and chips. So I always got used to this idea of duality, you know, almost like being two different people. So when I got this job, it was really, yes, it was about code switching, this time being an adult, being almost, you know, when anybody who starts working at a young age, you know, you're not fully realized as a, as a human, you know, as a grown-up. So you, you, you become what people want. So, you know, I, I'm going to be a grown-up today. You know, I'm going to, you know, be the one that is tough, even though I was so shy, you know. I'm going to be this person that I'm not really, you know, I'm, you know, I'm so creative and sensitive, but I try to hide all that. You tried to hide it, but you also asserted yourself in your aesthetic, in the choices that you made. So you were being subversive in that kind of way. What was that in you that really pushed you in that direction? It sounds like it, it started with the grounding with your family. Yeah, I mean, you know, I grew up sort of by my mother, you know, who was a seamstress, and she would make clothes for the most incredible women, like, and, you know, women of all, all sizes and women of all skin tones and ages. So for me, fashion was always such an inclusive, beautiful thing. And I loved beauty. And I loved beautiful, the beauty in women, you know. So when I started ID Magazine, for me, it wasn't even a case of making a statement. I just knew that the magazine had to reflect the world we lived in. It had to reflect the world in all its diversity. So even when people would say to me, oh, another black model on the cover, 
I used to say yes, and here's another one, and do three back to back. But at that age, I, w- I just knew that fear wasn't an option. You mentioned that your family migrated from Ghana to the UK in the early 80s. You were 13 years old at the time. But before moving to the UK, your mother, as you said, she was this successful dressmaker, and you were her assistant. What was her dress studio like, and what kinds of things would you do to assist her? So my mother had an atelier. Uh, she had about 40 seamstresses. So there, there was like a, almost like a huge room in a bungalow, and the seamstresses would sit all around, all around sewing. And my mum would be in another room. And, you know, if you know African fabrics, you know the colours. You know, you know, African women love to dress. There is no dressing down with African women. So I was my mother's assistant. I'll be sketching with her. I'll be literally zipping women into sort of corseted dresses. I'll be, you know, playing with, you know, eyelets. And, and I, was in an, I was transformed. But what my mother showed me, what those days showed me, and, and, you know, when people talk about today and, you know, inclusivity and diversity, I just knew from a young age that really beauty for me started with curvy women. Because growing up in Africa, you know, when my sister was very skinny and people would say to her, are you okay? Thinking she was ill. So in my, that's what I grew up with. So I didn't need to embrace. I didn't need to sort of go against the tide. Really, it's what I saw. The beauty of these powerful women. Your mom's clientele was pretty impressive. She would make clothes for presidents' wives. Do you remember what types of dresses she made for them? Yes. Oh, my God. I remember, I remember my mom always loved um, sort of nipped in waist, always like big sleeves, you know, sometimes three layered sleeves. And then, you know, peplums, but three layered peplums. But African bright orange prints, you know, African wax prints. And all I remember were those headscarves that would literally touch the sky. And the skirts were always really, really tight. So the women always hobbled along. But it was all about accentuating a woman's curves, not hiding them. It's almost like a, kind of an hourglass. I always remember, and I remember those beautiful, beautiful prints. You know, oranges, greens, greens mixed with oranges, yellows mixed with browns, sort of unexpected colours, which even to this day, when I'm putting colours together, I always, um, people always say, oh, that's a weird combination, but it works. This aesthetic is something that impacted your aesthetic as a stylist, too. Oh, my God, yes. I mean, I just knew that, you know, I always loved when women looked super glamorous when they looked the best version they could ever be and also learning from those early days when my mom sort of really enforced when I'm working with like you know Rihanna or Beyonce or an incredible icon I know from even like a a, a little expression on their face if they're comfortable or even a little wiggle of discomfort I notice all those things because of my mother's you know studio and studying what had made a woman feel really comfortable and really feel at her best. Mm. So you know, you can tell when you're working with a woman if she loves what you're doing, even if she's smiling, even if she's like, oh, this is great, you actually know the truth. (laughs) There's this little thing that, you know, there's a little wiggle of discomfort sometimes, even if they're smiling, or a a little flinch that I'm always looking for. You know, I'm always looking out for it. And, I'm, and I can always be like, oh, this is not the right one, is it? And eventually they'll be like, okay, 
yeah, let's try something else. But these are little things that I picked up from such a young age. Had I not been around my mom soaking in sort of women and, 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 and the beauty of women, I, would, I probably wouldn't have that sensitivity. And really what I picked up those early days was empathy, you know, very important. As someone who, who once felt like an outsider in the UK, you then just a few years ago received a special award from the British Empire for your services to diversify the fashion industry. When you received that award in 2016 from the British Empire, you say that it was the first time that you felt maybe seen, that you didn't feel like an outsider. I mean, I felt like all those years, you know, when you leave one country to another, you know, when you leave your home to find another home in a foreign country, and it takes quite a while. And I spent so many of my years sort of traveling, you know, I moved to New York. And then given this award while I lived in New York, I go back and I just realized, oh my God, I had contributed something to, to my country. And I wasn't that little outsider who arrived on the plane with my siblings that I'd been able to sort of take opportunity and really work hard. But while doing that, also, I was able to bring people up with me, people of color up with me, and I wasn't happy being the only one. So when I received the award, it was really a, a, a wonderful moment, it's especially also for my father, who literally had to f- come to a different country, you know, start a whole new life, not be able to work, not have any money, and bring up six kids. So I think for him, it was such a special moment. That, that was also one of the reasons why I, you know, I agreed to accept it. Because, you know, it, it made him very proud. There's a moment in the book where, where you talk about a celebration you all had and you see your dad off to the <laughs> side, so happy for you. And he's dancing and Madonna's next to him and he has no idea who, who these the people are. <laughs> Naomi on the other side. Yes, and he's a good dancer too. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like a beautiful moment, but hard fought because you all didn't have a great relationship growing up. He didn't want you no. to be in fashion he didn't want you to be gay. He actually told you he'd slit your throat if he found out you were gay. You all are cordial now. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, like I said, you know, I was a sort of the spacey, quiet, artistic child, and I always kind of stayed out of his way. Um, my brothers would always sort of get into trouble, but I would always just hide. I was so petrified of him. And then, you know, I guess he must have known that I was different or special as they say and we didn't have a very you know good relationship and then when I was 16 um you know I I got into fashion and I was supposed to be going to university when I was 18 and I I enrolled at Goldsmiths University but I really was not interested in university I was interested in fashion and one day I decided to tell him the truth that I hadn't been going to school, and then I wanted to be in the media. And so he threw my stuff out, and I was, like, out of the house, so I left, and we didn't make contact for a lot of years. And then, you know, my mother got ill, and I watched him just look after her and be sort of this incredible husband, essentially, and really cared for her for a lot of years before she passed. So that's when, you know, our relationship started getting better. Do you think he sees you now? I think he does. 
But there's always, I mean, you know, there's always this thing of you always think to yourself, if I didn't do what I did, if I didn't have this level of success, will I still be seen? And I like to say yes. I like to think yes. But, you know, it still plays on your mind sometimes. Edward, thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Edward Enenfil is the editor-in-chief of British Vogue and European editorial director for Condé Nast. His new memoir is called A Visible Man. He spoke with guest interviewer Tanya Mosley, host of the podcast Truth Be Told. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Sam Brigger. Listener.